Good morning. Nice to be with you today. My name is Peter Assad, and I have the joy of getting to open God's word for us. Let's start with a, a moment to pray. Father, we come before you knowing that you are the God of all, knowing that you are the God who sees past, present, and future, knowing that you are the God who is still today at work. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. And right now, as we look into your word, I ask that you would do what only you can do and transform lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Be honest, how many of us here already have our 4th of July weekend all planned out? Just me? How about Labor Day weekend? Anybody? No? Big plan set, or, or how about this? Any overachievers already got their family Christmas stuff figured out from now? I got one more. Who here marked their calendars this year for Ascension Day? No bites? No bites. Nobody had big plans for the Ascension to celebrate it? Some of you might be asking, Peter, what even is the Ascension? And that would be a fair question. The Ascension, let, let me put it this way. Follow the story of Jesus with me. Uh, the Son of God, second person in the Trinity took on flesh and bone, became human, right? He was born of the Virgin Mary. He grew up and taught and performed many miracles, all the while claiming to be God. He was then falsely tried, falsely convicted, crucified on a cross to die, and laid in a grave. But as we know, with Jesus, death is not the end of the story, amen? That brings us from Christmas to Easter. And that's usually where our telling of the story of Jesus comes to an abrupt halt. But it turns out there's more. Because for the following 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus continued to appear to his disciples. And he taught them more about the kingdom of God. He told them to wait for the promised Holy Spirit. And he told them that they'd be sent out to go and make disciples of all nations. And then on day 40, Jesus Christ disappeared. But he didn't just vanish. He was taken up into heaven in this stark way that seems much more intentional than we often give it credit. That was the ascension. And now of all the major Christian holidays, I get why Christmas gets remembered, right? Presence, am I right? And we understand why Good Friday is a big deal, the cross, and not to mention Easter, the empty grave. But what about Ascension Day? What about the day when Jesus went up and away into heaven? See, not many of us remember the Ascension. Think about it. When's the last time we even heard an entire sermon on the Ascension of Jesus? And yet, I want to... Help us realize today that the ascension is enormously important. And we're going to take the next 35 minutes or so to see why. Because I've come to find that until the ascension, until we get the ascension right, until we understand the importance and the implications of the ascension of Christ... We will not understand what God is up to today in the here and now, and we will not grasp the potency of the mission that he has called us to. 
See, until the ascension of Christ becomes more than just this neat little doctrine that we tuck away in the archive of our minds, we will effectively live cowardly, hopeless, pathetic lives, robbed of all the power and presence of Christ that has been made available to us by the ascension. And so if you're tired of living a hopeless, cowardly life, if you feel deep in your bones that you were meant for something more, for something bigger, for something truer and more real and more courageous and more steadfast and strong, then let's discover together what the ascension is, why it matters, and watch how God transforms our lives to never be the same. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, we'll be looking really working our way through verses through verse 11 this morning starting now with just verse 1 in the first book o theophilus i have dealt with all that jesus what's that word in, in yellow began to do and teach I want to give us a statement this morning that we can take with us on the ascension and we're going to build it a piece at a time as we go along but first the ascension means that Jesus continues to work. Jesus continues to work. The book of Acts was written by a man, a doctor named Luke. And Luke is writing this historical record to somebody named Theophilus, which anyone looking for baby names, Theophilus, call him Theo or Phil. This guy is likely Luke's benefactor. And as you might know, Luke's already written uh, another book in the Bible, the Gospel of, any guesses? Oh, you got to do better than that. The Gospel of, hint, it's not Matthew, it's not Mark, it's not John. It's the, the Gospel of Luke. Yes, yes. Well, Luke, the Gospel of Luke is the first book that is mentioned here in the verse. And now Luke is writing part two. He's writing the sequel called Acts. And now typically, whenever I read something, I don't know about you, but I have this tendency to want to skip over the introductory stuff, just kind of get to the good stuff. But that would be a total mistake here because I want you to see something. Luke starts the sequel off by saying that in his first book, in the Gospel of Luke, he wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. What Jesus began meaning Christ's work on earth was just the beginning of Christ's work for all of time. Christ's work on earth, the miracles, the, the teachings, the crucifixion, the resurrection, this was all just the beginning, meaning there's more on Jesus's to-do list. And Luke wants to be sure that we're not assuming that, well, Jesus has died and raised, I guess he's done. No, the ascension tells us, it proves to us that there is more that Jesus is about to do. And somehow, the only way he can accomplish it is through the ascension. So Christ's work is still being accomplished. God's will is still being made known on earth as in heaven. Think about this. The Jesus that you know today, the Jesus that you relate to, that you pray to, that you worship and follow, is not the 33-year-old olive-toned historical figure from the Middle East 2,000 years ago. The Jesus that we know is the ascended Christ. 
the ascended Jesus is the only Jesus that we can know today. We relate to him as the one who is seated in the heavens at the Father's right hand, who, as the scriptures tell us, is up to some pretty important things. And here are just a couple. Romans 8, 34 tells us that Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and indeed is interceding for us. The ascended Christ right now intercedes on your behalf. He's your defense attorney. The context of this verse, Paul, the apostle, is asking a question. Can anyone lay a charge against those that Jesus has saved? And Paul jumps in. The Jesus Christ, the ascended Christ, intercedes. Jesus steps in. He fills the gap and fights the fight for us. That's what he's saying. But what happens, of course, when we're the one doing stuff that we shouldn't do? Not just when someone else accuses us, but when we're doing some pretty silly things. Does Jesus ever shift from defense attorney to prosecutor? Well, 1 John 2.1 tells us that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You mess up, guess what? Jesus not only intercedes when others try to ruin you, but he's your advocate when you try to ruin yourself. That's just a little bit of a glimpse into what Jesus is up to now, all because he has ascended. He is still at work because the ascension was simply the next necessary step following the cross and resurrection in this unfolding plan of ministry of Christ. Now, I've come to find a helpful metaphor to understand looks like this, the relationship between dynamite and its fuse. See, the gospel is like dynamite. It has all of this life-transforming power, but the gospel would have zero effect if the ascension did not happen because the ascension takes the dynamite power of the gospel and it lays out the fuse. It sets the timer, so to speak, but what is the spark? I'm so glad you asked. Jesus continues to work by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the spark that lights the fuse, the ascension set in place so that the gospel message would explode throughout all of time and space. This could only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we know this because of what Jesus says next in Acts chapter 1. Look at verses 4 and 5. And while staying with them, Jesus ordered his disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me how John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jump to verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So for all of the work in heaven that Jesus is doing, there is also a work on earth taking place, and the Holy Spirit is the key. The Holy Spirit, which one author aptly named the forgotten God, takes everything Christ is busy doing in heaven and makes it available now on earth. 
See, before the ascension, Jesus was confined to one place at one time. He could only heal this person here or that person there or teach this message here. But because of the ascension, by the power of the Spirit, we find that Christ's presence and his power and his promises are made available and accessible to all people in all places at all times. Now, the the early church... In Acts, we're going to see, they had very little knowledge about the Holy Spirit. But their lives were undoubtedly filled to the brim with the Spirit of God. Today, we have so much knowledge available to us about the Spirit. And knowledge is good. But have we allowed our information about the Spirit to crowd out the influence of the Spirit? The church in Acts didn't have the Galatians 5 list of the fruit of the Spirit, of love, joy, peace, kindness. But read through this book on your own and you will find that they absolutely displayed all of those qualities. They didn't have the the list of spiritual gifts of, you know, am I a prophet? Am I a teacher? Am I a servant? They didn't have the list of 1 Corinthians 12 or the list of Romans 12, but these men and women absolutely possessed and executed all the gifts of leading and serving and prophecy and giving and showing mercy. So what did the early Christians know? What did they know? Seven verses. Seven verses. Verses about the Holy Spirit. That's it. Seven verses where Jesus tells the disciples about the Holy Spirit, who he would be, uh, how he would be the spark to the dynamite of the gospel made available for all who trust in Jesus. I can't walk through each of them with you now, but I'll give you the references right here on the screen. And you can write them down, take a picture of it, and, and be sure to check them out for yourself this week. But here's the text, and here's what it teaches. The Spirit of God resides in us. That's what John 14 tells us. John 16 says the spirit of God benefits us. Jesus goes so far as to say that it's better to have the spirit within us than Jesus beside us. Crazy. The Holy Spirit works through us. John 16 continues. The Holy Spirit guides us. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus alone. Not just glorifies Jesus alone. Glorifies Jesus only. His only task in life is to glorify Christ. The Holy Spirit assures us of Christ's return. And then finally in our reading today, Acts 1.8 teaches us that the Holy Spirit empowers us to live on mission. That's it. That is all they knew. That the Spirit resides, benefits, works through, guides, glorifies, assures, and empowers us to tell others about Jesus until he returns. That's all they had. But what was the response of all around who witnessed their love and works and saw how sacrificially they gave of themselves, whether it was relationally or financially in all things, whether Christian or non-Christian, it says that all were absolutely amazed, astonished, 
You see this in Acts 2.6. You see this in Acts 3.10, in Acts 4.13, in Acts 12.16, and on and on it goes through the book of Acts. The people watching the Spirit of God work through the people of God are blown away by what is taking place. And you might remember that whenever Jesus similarly taught, he, whenever Jesus healed or performed miracles, he did so in a way that similarly left people utterly astonished at who he was. And here we see that the early Christians are finding the world respond in the very same kind of awe. Because such unbelievable things were taking place that only God could get the credit. Only Jesus could get the glory because that's what the Holy Spirit does, right? He glorifies Jesus only. And this demands a sobering question for us today. Does your life, does our ministry glorify Jesus? Or can it all just be explained away? Can our lives be explained? Can our attitudes, our grudges, our generosity, our forgiveness or lack thereof be easily understood by a world who doesn't know Christ? Or do our actions instead bust through all earthly paradigms? How could they be that loving? How could they be that generous? How could they, who in the world, what is their secret? What's the hope that they have? Like do our, our lives inspire questions and curiosity or is it so easy to explain? Oh yeah, that's what everybody does. If our lives can be explained, if there's nothing shocking or different about us and how we go about living, then who gets the glory? Who gets the credit? If it doesn't glorify Jesus, then it is not of the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit works only to bring glory to Christ. But look at who he chooses to work through. Verse 8, look at this. Jesus says, but who? You got to help me out a little more than that. But who? You. You. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Jesus continues his work by the power of the Holy Spirit through his witnesses. And that's us. That's you and me. Jesus continues his work through us as his witnesses, empowered by the Holy Spirit, the power that raised Christ from the dead. Two thoughts immediately jump out through my mind. The first is the role of a witness, the role of the witness and the responsibility of a witness. Consider the role. When somebody's on trial, the role of a witness is simple. Just tell everybody what you saw and what you heard, right? That's literally all a witness is called to do. You don't have to have a lot of answers. You just need to have your answers. You just tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Nothing, that's it, right? This is what I saw. This is what I heard. And so to be a witness for Jesus is no different. That's all he calls us to be, not some other big He doesn't call us to stand on a stage. Like He just says, be my witness. What have you seen Jesus do in your life? Whatever that is, share that with somebody. 
That's all it means to be a witness. We overcomplicate things. We love to make things so much more difficult than they need to be. What have you seen Jesus do? Who are you before you met him? Who are you now? Tell that story. That's it. Witnessing is simply telling people what you've witnessed Jesus do in your life, period. The Holy Spirit is the power that raised Christ from the dead, so he'll cause our words to bring life in others if they're meant to, but our role is simply to speak up. And secondly, the responsibility of a witness. Because think about it, a bad witness could seriously ruin an entire case. You get the wrong person up there taking the stand. If they lie, if they're in cahoots with the wrong kinds of people, if the witness is compromised in any kind of a way, it can literally make or break an entire case. And this is the case for Christ. And you and I have a responsibility to help the world recognize who Jesus is because for some reason, Jesus has chosen to tether his entire reputation on us. Like, I don't even know why. I wouldn't trust me personally. No offense, but I don't know if I trust you. And yet, God, in all of his infinite wisdom, says that he thinks we're the right people for this task. He's entrusted us with this serious responsibility to help make the case before a lost and dying world so that whose eternity hangs in the balance. Hmm. You feeling the pressure yet? I think we should, but we need to recognize that we're not alone because Christ has given us the power of the Holy Spirit to work within us, to work through us. And in the words of Uncle Ben, any Spider-Man fans, with great power comes great responsibility. That was just for me, I guess. So let's rise to the occasion and live out the role that he has called us to. But now I want us to see the scope of this call, the scope. Uh, Take a look at verse 8. It continues with Jesus saying, and you will be my witnesses in, now watch the progression, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let me ask, are we in Jerusalem? Are we in Judea or Samaria? Well, then think about this. That makes us the ends of the earth. How incredible is it to be part of a movement of the gospel that has been underway these last 2,000 years that sure enough has been accomplishing what Jesus intended it to. Because even while he's been seated in the heavens, he's still been at work by the power of the Spirit through us as his witnesses who have been, and here's the fourth piece, sent on a rescue mission for the entire world. We have been sent on a rescue mission for the entire world, to the ends of the earth, he says. Now there is still much work to be done. There are people in our world who have yet to hear the good news or have yet to respond to this good news. But so often we downplay our role as witnesses because we think, well, 
I'm not some missionary who's going to get like martyred for my faith in a foreign country. While this may be true, it does not diminish the role that we are called to play because you and I have been sent on a rescue mission to the ends of the earth. And that includes the ends of our driveways. For some of us, the ends of our bedroom. For some of us, the ends of our beds. Our church has a rich history of sending Christians to do good ministry work in Taiwan and and, and beyond. And I love that. And I pray for continued ministry impact all across the globe on a regular basis. But even more than praying for God to send us to the ends of the earth, I pray that he would make us faithful to the people at the ends of our driveways. That our literal neighbors and coworkers and those we rub shoulders with on a regular basis would by our witness come to see who Jesus has been accused of being. That he is the creator God of the universe. That he is the savior and sustainer of all things. That he is the maker of all things new. And the Lord who loves us so much, he calls us into a truer way of living. And that you and I have been sent as his witnesses on his behalf to help others come to know this one that we have come to know. So I'm going to give us a practical tool right now, just a very basic strategy. You've heard of C4, right? C4, that stuff is explosive. Well, this, this is called I-4, and if used rightly, it is just as powerful. First, identify. Identify four people in your life who do not know Jesus Christ. That's the first step. Identify four people in your life who do not yet know Christ. Some of you may know exactly who those four people are. But for the rest of us, if we're not sure, here's a great way to find out. Here, here's the next slide. Draw a four-circle Venn diagram. Four circles, and for each circle, label it live, learn, work, and play. And in each circle, write around five, to, you know, write down around five or ten names, whatever makes sense, uh, of people that you live with. So a list of, let's say, ten people that you live with uh, or live near. Uh, a list of uh, ten people that you learn with. Could be at school, could be whatever it might be, a class. Ten people that you work with, whether it's your job, or ten people that you play with. Play meaning a hobby or some kind of recreational thing. So ten people in each of those categories. And then once you've got your names down, see if there's any overlap. Any repetition of names. Maybe this, maybe someone you live with is someone you learn with is someone you play with. Start with that person because you're going to have lots of interactions naturally with that person on the list. The idea is to identify four people that you want to intentionally reach out to who do not know Christ. And this is a great way to to get those four names. Secondly, intercede for them. Intercede at least four times a week for four weeks in prayer. And if you're up for it, through fasting, through fasting. You could set alarms or designate particular days, however you want to do it, but take an entire month to pray for them four times a week for four weeks. And while you're doing that, invest. That's the next I. Invest four times a month, basically once a week, 
So it might be if you have four people, one week you invest in one person, one week you invest in the next person, one week you invest in the next person, so on and so forth. Maybe just to build a relationship. Maybe you're sharing a meal together. Maybe you're watching the game together. You know, baseball, KC Royals represent, right? Or maybe uh, you're trying to find a, a game night, try to throw a game night. Whatever it might be, you name it. But start getting to know their story and invest there. And then finally... Invite them to Christ and invite them into church. Invite them to Christ or into the church community. This is where you invite them to hear about Jesus. This is where whether you're inviting them to to a, a church event or you're sharing the gospel with them yourself and you're giving witness to what Jesus has done in your life, this is about making known the one that you have come to know. And so invite them after you've identified and you've interceded and you've invested and invited. That's I4. Just a simple strategy that if you have one that you've been looking for, I don't know how to be his witness. This is a, a very basic way that we can take this step together. After all, Jesus continues to work, doesn't he? By the power of the Holy Spirit, through his witnesses, who are sent on a rescue mission for the entire world as he sits enthroned at the Father's right hand. Jesus sits enthroned at the Father's right hand. Verse 9 shows us this, that when Jesus had said these things, as the disciples were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now tell me, do you think this means that if you were to go up in outer space, you'd be able to find a throne out there with Jesus sitting on it? We chuckle a little bit. But I say this because I want to get out of our minds the notion that the Father's right hand is some kind of a place in space. It's, it's not a point of geography. It is a position of authority. The ascension is not the great evacuation of Jesus. The ascension is the great exaltation of Jesus. Jesus didn't escape. He was exalted. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, he tells us in Matthew 28. The ascension isn't the explanation for his absence, but of his cosmic presence, because he's no longer confined to one place at a time, because now he fills all in all. The Apostle Paul articulates this in Ephesians 1 when he says that God the Father has seated Christ at his right hand far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named not only in this age but in the one to come and he has put all things under Christ's feet and given him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of Christ who fills all in all what I'm saying is Jesus Christ is king now He is king now. He's not some princess awaiting his future coronation and ascension to the throne. No, he is in power now. And all who profess Jesus as Lord are effectively saying Caesar is not. Biden is not. America is not. To be Christian is intensely political. 
not in the way of right versus left or this and that, but in the way that it shatters through all human-made conventions and paradigms. Because the rule of Christ, the reign of Christ has begun, and we are called to be witnesses of the government that rests upon his shoulders, the shoulders that bore our sin, that took our shame, the the shoulders that have won our salvation. And I'm telling you, this will infuriate a world bent on serving other powers. Which is why, at times, such a witness will result in opposition and persecution. So many Christians throughout history and throughout our world have experienced and are experiencing this. It is intrinsically Christian to be persecuted when we live like a Christian because none are greater than our master who was crucified. Not because he was a nice guy. You don't crucify a nice guy, you crucify a threat. And Jesus was a threat to the powers that be. And so how fitting is it that the Greek word that we translate here in our passage as witness is the Greek word martus, which is where we get our English word martyr from. Because the ultimate witness for our crucified God is to follow in those steps all the way to a cross, as it were. Because Jesus didn't suffer, so we would never suffer, but that we might become like him in our suffering. And you see this in the story of Stephen, the first martyr from Acts chapter 7. It starts with the people becoming enraged. They're outraged by his witness. And verse 55 picks up saying, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazing into heaven. Verse 56, he says, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Tell me. Didn't that do something in his heart? To see the ascended Christ in that moment, don't you think it gave him a boldness in that situation, the ascension of Jesus? Seeing Christ not absent but present, not having been evacuated but having been exalted to the position of power at the Father's right hand, that same vision is what empowers us to be bold for him as well. It's why the ascension matters. It's why Jesus is Lord now matters. Because otherwise, what is the point? Where is the hope? My cowardice is entirely contingent on my disbelief that Jesus is Lord. But if he's Lord, then I will rise up. I will step up. We will step out and be the witness that he has called us to be, no matter the cost, because I know my soul is secure. And we know that what people think of us matters so much less than what they think of Jesus. But those people that day, they didn't want anything to do with it. And so they chose to reject Stephen and to reject Jesus, and they put an end to the life of Stephen. And yet, you need to see this, because even while they're killing him, verse 60 tells us that falling to his knees, Stephen cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then, 
he died. But now tell me, do not lay this sin against them. Who does that sound like to you? I can't help but see Christ on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. Lord, don't hold this against them. (laughs) Here he is giving his witness even in the final moments of his life and becoming exactly like our Lord. Matthew Henry put it this way, it is easier to fight for Christ than to die for him. But Christ's good soldiers overcome not by taking other people's lives, but by laying down our own. And I want us to see Stephen's sacrifice was not in vain. One historian said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and we see that in Stephen's story because in verse 58, he tells us that there was somebody standing there keeping watch, a young man named Saul. And Saul, we find out, has an encounter soon afterwards with Jesus. And Jesus renames him to Paul. And Paul, as we saw earlier, ends up writing that beautiful, glorious passage from Ephesians 1 where he acknowledges that Jesus is in the position of power because he witnessed it. Paul saw it. He saw it lived out in Stephen. And one day, it clicked for him too. Because Saul, Paul, ends up writing most of the New Testament. And he goes and he plants churches throughout the world, once a terrorist against Christians, later a witness for Christ like the world has never seen. Because he saw it in Stephen. We may not all be a Stephen or a Paul. Maybe none of us will be, but we are all called to be his witnesses, sent on a rescue mission for the entire world, starting with the ends of our driveways because Jesus is still at work through us by the power of a spirit until, here's our last piece, until the day he comes again. Until the day he comes again. Verse 10 and 11, look at Acts chapter one with me and then we'll close. And while they were gazing into heaven as Jesus went, behold, two angels stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? A.K.A., why are you just standing around? Right? Disciples, quit standing around. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Can I share some good news this morning? Jesus is coming again. That's what the angels are telling the disciples here and they're telling us too, Jesus is returning. Our king will come. You can count on it. The ascension assures us of it. The Holy Spirit within us is the guarantee of it. Jesus will come again, but there is still work to be done. Work that you and I have been invited to join in and become part of as well. And so as we go out into our weeks, may we always remember that Jesus Christ is King.
and he's coming again. He sends us out in power. He sends us out with power. And so take heart. Live boldly, hope fully, and quit standing around. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, you are still at work by the power of the Holy Spirit who fills us and empowers us as your witnesses sent on a rescue mission through the entire world as you sit enthroned as Lord now at the Father's right hand until the day you come again. So Lord, we await that day with eager anticipation, the day that you will make all things new. And we want nothing more than to see all of our neighbors and all of our friends and all of our coworkers and all of our families joining with us arm in arm, entering the fullness of your kingdom with us. So may this truth about who you are and what you are up to now change us? Would it infuse us with courage? Would it infuse us with heart today? May we be dangerous for you, Lord, prayerful for you, hopeful in you alone in the midst of whatever fire and trial may come our way, knowing there is life under no other name than the name of Jesus, because you are King of kings, and you are Lord of lords, and you are the Savior of all, and nothing will ever bring an end to your reign. We love you. We praise you. We bless you in the name that is above every other name. Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.